dodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you My shiny black bass To the playhouse of fortune To take the bright silver And gold you have taken From somebody else And as we go riding In the damp foggy you're listening to episode 739 of Unwelcome Guests, The Devil's Chessboard. I'm Robin Upton, and we have two pieces for you this week. The main one, which we shall hear in just a minute, is an interview of David Talbot about his new book, The Devil's Chessboard, which focuses on Alan Dulles and his role within the CIA. Now that is one hour and 40 minutes. That left us with a small space to fill. And I thought, well, it's time for this because I've been waiting for more material about the Bank for International Settlements. I think a very important and under-researched topic. Well, I'm going to conclude with author Adam Lebor being interviewed about his book, on the Bank for International Settlements. Now, without further ado, let's hear the following interview. This is from October 2015, and it's carried out by Len Osanik and Jim DiEugenio. I took it from episode 755 of Black Ops Radio. Many thanks for that audio. Can you give us a brief background of your writing and interest in this topic? Well, it came out of my previous book, Brothers, The Hidden History of the Kennedy Years, in which I followed Bobby Kennedy's investigative path as he privately explored the assassination of his brother. And I know from my research on that book that Bobby, pretty quickly after the assassination, almost immediately, in fact, was looking at the anti-Castro operation run by the CIA as the source of the plot against his own brother. And so I continue to follow that trajectory for the five years that Bobby lived until he himself was assassinated in 1968. But Bobby obviously didn't have access to all the information that we later developed, we being the JFK research community and various investigative projects, uh, the House Select Committee on Assassinations and so on in the 1970s. So obviously there was a wealth of new information that Bobby Kennedy, despite the fact that he was an expert investigator uh, and of course was plugged into a lot of corners of American power, but even Bobby didn't have access to the full story, I believe. So I was always haunted by the question, you know, if Bobby continued to pursue the case, what would he have found out? Who was responsible for killing his brother and who should have been put on trial? And so it was in a conversation, actually, with Peter Dale Scott, and I'd begun to think heavily about Alan Dulles, the uh, director of the CIA, who was fired by President Kennedy, as my chief culprit for a number of reasons. But it was during a conversation with Peter Dale Scott one day in Berkeley where it all kind of came together, and I tell this story in the book, how Peter mentioned as a, a young professor at Berkeley, he was invited to a conservative conclave, this dinner at 
held at the home of W. Glenn Campbell, the founder of the Hoover Institute, the right-wing institute here in the Bay Area at Stanford. And this was, I believe, in 1962. It was a very conservative group, and they spent most of the dinner table conversation railing about Kennedy, this weak president who was destroying the country and putting the country at risk and so on. And Peter actually was not that political at that point in his life. And he was kind of astonished as a Canadian, a polite Canadian, and a former diplomat. And that's why he'd been invited to this dinner party. He had served in Poland and and knew a number of people in the anti-communist exile community in the United States. But he was kind of shocked at how venomous the conversation was about Kennedy. And finally, a Russian exile priest who seemed to be the alpha male in the room got up. Peter didn't remember his name and kind of quieted everybody and said, don't worry, the old man will take care of it. And Peter thought at the time that he was referring to old Joe Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, who was supposedly going to get JFK under control. Uh, But I had known that by that point, uh, Joe Kennedy, of course, was all but incapacitated by a massive stroke he'd had in late 1961, I believe, December 61. And he was in no position to advise his son at that point. But I did know from my research that the old man was the nickname that uh, Alan Dulles was known by within the intelligence community very affectionately, the old man. So that you know triggered a, a series of then uh, thoughts in my mind, and, and uh, that's really how the story of the book began to take shape. Now, this Dulles era, do you want to describe – what you think the Dulles era, what people should come away with, if you're thinking about John and, and Alan and what they represented? Yeah, well, this is the lawless era that America continues to operate within. And in many ways, the Dulles era is the beginning of everything that we're grappling with today. America is perhaps the most dangerous and lawless country in the world. And this precedent was set, the stage was set for this during the Dulles period. Every president virtually that the Dulles brothers served, particularly Alan Dulles, was manipulated by the Dulles brothers, particularly Alan, was subverted. The presidencies were subverted, I would go as far as to say, by the, uh, Alan Dulles. All the kind of controversial policies from the torture, extraordinary rendition, extra-legal assassination, subversion of foreign governments, even foreign allies, massive surveillance of private citizens, on and on down the list, all these things that we associate with the post-9/11 era actually have their origins in the Dulles era. And I guess that's where the the uh, the title comes from, because you make the reference there. That I think you're being light on him, just calling him the devil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I couldn't find any horns on him, but uh, but I do think yes, he symbolized a kind of. The evil of power, in a way, you know, some people call him a psychopath, you know, in sort of the, he had this cold amorality, I think. He was able to send people to their death without blinking an eye. He regarded his own children, his own family with kind of a cold detachment. He again and again, you know, he put his own son in the hands of MKUltra doctor who performed experimental and very brutal treatments on him. Yeah, I mean, this is a man who's virtually capable of anything. Yeah. Now, now before we get too in-depth here, because that's the good thing about this book, and I really recommend it. I bought the audio version of it, so it's over 24 hours long, so I know that's how long it, it, it'll take someone to listen to it. But um, you go into in-depth from a very, uh, a very almost a childhood 
and to their family history and 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 but before i get too far in where can we get the book and do you have a website that uh, there's more information well of course i encourage everyone to to buy the book at their independent bookstore in fact because of the support of independent bookstores here in california the book has already become a bestseller in california and that's despite the kind of media blacklist of the book at least mainstream media so i would encourage people to support their independent bookstore but it's also available on amazon Right, and I got it at audible.com, my copy. Right. Okay, Jim, do you, uh, we both, me and Jim both have a series of questions we'd like to bring up, but uh, go ahead, Jim, if you want to well, start. On, on the last uh, go-round, um, you, you know, it's really kind of funny because uh, back in the 90s when I started to do a lot of talks on the JFK case, and I would get to a certain topic, like Mockingbird, I would preface what I was going to talk about, and I would say something like this. I would say, like most of the bad things in American life, it began with Alan Dulles. Okay, so so, so I'm really glad that he, he made that sort of like the coda to his book, you know, that so many of the horrible things that we have to put up with in American life today began with the Dulles brothers, mm-hmm. you know. And I know, and I wasn't the first, obviously, to start to focus on Alan Dulles. Jim, I was aware of, you know, your writing about Dulles as well, and uh, there were a number of other researchers I know who were looking in that direction. But I just felt this had to be given a book-length treatment. But he was emerging, I think, in some circles, including the ones that Jim, you know, uh, frequents, as kind of, uh, you know, leading suspect in the case. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting, I, I believe. He begins the book with a really memorable scene Okay, be, between Alan Dulles, was he was was Dulles and Byrne in World War yes, II? Yes, in Switzerland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and he's negotiating with some Baron who's the representative of Heinrich Himmler. Himmler mm-hmm. Okay, and the Nazi is, prince, the cemetery was called. Right, and so it, it's a very great way to begin the book because, as uh, Talbot says, he goes Roosevelt had given orders that there would be an unconditional surrender, meaning there was no negotiating with anybody, all right? You know, America and England were going to lay down the law at the end. So here you have Alan Dulles actually disobeying Roosevelt's orders and negotiating off the books with a representative of the SS commander-in-chief, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was a really good way to begin the book because it shows that Dulles didn't obey anybody's orders. He conducted his own foreign policy according to what he wanted to do. And to hell with everybody else. Precisely. And I, I think that's why he wanted to be stationed in Switzerland during the war instead of London, where most of the OSS was, because he knew he would have very little supervision in Bern, Switzerland, because it was closed off. The Nazis had encircled Switzerland, obviously. It was ostensibly a neutral country, but of course, in many ways, it was uh, collaborating with Nazi Germany. The banks, of course, were laundering Nazi assets and so on. And so he was he was in heaven there. He was really on his own, by and large. He could defy Roosevelt's policy. And at the same time as he's meeting with these Nazi emissaries who are slipping across the border to talk with him, he's also meeting with brave Germans, like Schindler types, who uh, one man named Edward Schulte, who was a, a businessman, who saw the beginning of the construction of Auschwitz. And frantically crossed the border at risk to his own life to inform Alan Dulles, who was supposedly the representative of the Roosevelt government, 
And he thought that Delafin would alert the world and alert the Roosevelt administration to this horror, the, the final solution that was in the early stages. But Alan Dulles wasn't concerned about the plight of the Jews. He actually sat on that information. He never, we know from reading his cables back to Washington, he never made the plight of the Jews his number one concern. He was indifferent. And what he really was concerned about was making sure that Nazi Germany emerged from World War II as a strong bulwark against the Soviet Union, which he always thought, even during the war, when the Soviet Union was taking the brunt of Hitler's onslaught, he always thought that Russia was the main enemy. Right. So he was, he was you know, performing treasonously throughout World War II. As Jim said, he was subverting Roosevelt's policy, the Allied policy of unconditional surrender, and he was doing business with his old friends because, of course, he and his brother Foster go way back with these Nazis, back to their days at Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street, their big law firm, where they have clients like IG Farben, which, of course, is the notorious chemical company, a German company that produced Zyklon B, among other things, the pesticide that was used to exterminate Jews. And they're exchanging you know, cheery Christmas cards back and forth up into, really, into the war, into the war years. So, you know, they were quite comfortable, and Alan in particular, associating with the devil. Yeah, well, isn't your first chapter called The Double Agent? Exactly. I see him as a double agent. (laughs) Right, right. He's working both sides, the Americans and the Germans, as he's in this. And, and Dad, that's a very good point you brought up, that at Bern, you know, he basically didn't have a lot of supervision. You know, so he'd conduct his own foreign policy. You know, you know, any which way he wanted. And, and as, as that's a very great title, Double Agent, because, you know, when you go into the whole history of the Dulles brothers, one of the reasons Sullivan and Cromwell was so prosperous is that they had no compunction about dealing with these Nazi companies all the way up. And as David just said, probably actually into the war. Mm-hmm. Arthur Goldberg, the, who worked with Dulles in the OSS and later became a Supreme Court justice, said later that the Dulles brothers both should have been put on trial for treason. And I believe if Roosevelt had actually lived and the New Deal had continued into the post-war years, there's a very good chance there would have been a so-called banker's trial when a number of these bankers and industrials would have been put on trial for collaboration. You know, Foster, back in New York, still running the law firm during the war, was doing all he could, along with his associates, to hide the assets of Nazi clients of his, so they couldn't be seized as enemy property. There were a number of major American corporations that were collaborating the same way secretly, Standard Oil, General Motors, and so on. So, you know, there would have been a reckoning if Roosevelt, if that presidency had continued into the post-war years. I'm not sure if this is in your book, but uh, you probably came across it. Didn't Sullivan and Cromwell set up shell companies for IG Farben? Yes. So their right. so their assets wouldn't be seized right. by the Roosevelt government. Right, right. Now I don't know if you ran across this. There was a great New York Times article on this, in which an investigator in the Senate or something said, after studying Farben, he goes, "There's no doubt about it. Farben was Hitler, and Hitler was Farben. That's how yes. important Farben was." And, and, and these companies right. were these companies were interlinked. They would have subsidiaries, German and American companies that were connected. And so at one point it got so absurd that in hiding these assets, they were protecting these companies and the technology that America needed to, to pursue the war, diesel technology, fuel technology, and products were being kept from the U.S. military. 
So you could say, I mean, that was a direct subversion of the war effort that was being undertaken by corporate clients of the, of the Dulles brothers. Right. That, that's why people like Goldberg later thought they should have been put on trial for treason. Yeah. Clearly, they put their, the, the interests of their clients, even when they were Nazi-related or, or Nazis, above the good of the country and, and uh, the war effort. Yeah. So, like you, like you clearly delineate in your book, what Dulles was doing in Switzerland there was simply an extension of what he and his brother had been doing for Sullivan and Cromwell. Yeah, and it continues, of course, till the very end of the war, and this was the other key thing he did. So he engineered something called Operation Sunrise, which was a top-secret plan, and had to be secret again because it violated, once again, the official Allied policy of unconditional surrender that had been worked out at the Casablanca Conference with Churchill and Roosevelt. Stalin wasn't able to come because he was busy trying to win the Battle of Stalingrad, which was, of course, a turning point in the war. But at that conference, to assure Stalin that he wouldn't be stabbed in the back, Roosevelt very strongly lays out this policy, the unconditional surrender. No, we're not going to cut any separate deals with the Nazis. We're going to crush this regime and bring its leaders to justice. But at the end of the war, Dulles is again very busy trying to cut a deal with Nazi forces in Italy, primarily Karl Wolf, who's the former liaison between Hitler and Himmler. You can't get more criminal than that and is now in charge of the all-security forces, including the SS, in Italy. But he was a shrewd guy, and he knew his days were numbered. He knew he would end up in a war crimes trial, so he spends the last weeks of the war frantically trying to cut a deal with Dulles. And Dulles, because he's very concerned about stopping the Red Army from overrunning Western Europe and coming into Italy, is very intent on also cutting this deal. And so they do in the final days of the war. It doesn't really say, they, you know, Dulles later presented it as a major strategic victory because it stopped bloodshed and destruction in Italy. Well, it, it really didn't save any lives. It was only five days before the general surrender in, in Germany. The only necks it saved were Karl Wolf, this SS general, his neck, and those of his the top aides, all of whom should have been put on trial at Nuremberg. You know, Karl Wolf was responsible for keeping the trains running on time for Hitler to the camps. He ran as the head of the SS in Italy. He tortured and executed Italian partisans. He even tortured and executed American agents, intelligence agents who worked for Dulles. And yet, this, you know, he was cutting a deal with this guy. One of his top aides, one of the top people who worked with Karl Wolf in Italy, Walter Rauf, was another notorious war criminal who invented the first tool of the final solution, you know, before the camps were built, what they would do, the Nazis, where they had these mobile trucks that they would run around the battlefields and, and the front and the eastern front and round up Jews and put them in the back of these vans. And they had the, the gas lines then were attached into the compartment where the Jews were stuffed. And they would gas them to death in these mobile death vans. They're hideous instruments of death. And they were so hideous that the Nazi soldiers who were forced to clean up afterwards were so repelled and sickened by it that they knew they needed a more efficient assembly line of death, which is why they began building the concentration camps. Well, this guy, this is his brainstorm, these mobile death vans, Walter Rauf, ends up in Italy and is hidden away in a luxurious apartment at the end of the war, along with some of these other notorious war criminals, where James Angleton, who's Dulles's, of course, 
close deputy and later head of counterintelligence under Dulles at the CIA, and really sort of our top intelligence guy in Italy because his, his family's roots there. He installs these war criminals there to hide them from American intelligence agents who are searching for them to put them, you know, so they can uh, face justice. And just as quickly as they would be rounded up and put in jail, Angleton and his associates would let them out the back door. Walter Ralph ends up being tipped off before a raid. He flees. He gets to, uh, I believe he ended his days in Chile, where he worked with the Pinochet government as a top intelligence advisor and, of course, on torture and so on. So these were the kind of men that Dulles rescued and rehabilitated after the war. Now, I guess we should make one more mention here about the end of World War II, and that, of course, is another guy that Dulles was instrumental in getting out of the clutches of uh, Nuremberg, which, of course, is Reinhard Galen. And yeah. he did a really nice job on, on <laughs> Dulles getting him to the baseball game. <laughs> exactly. I began the chapter that way. Yeah. Here's Reinhard Galen, who was Hitler's top spy on the Eastern Front, and he's sitting in a ball game with his deputy, who you know, served with Galen throughout the war. And it turns out the deputy was a baseball nut, this German, this, ex, this Nazi. And they're sitting, right, this courtesy of the CIA, they have tickets to the 1951 World Series, the final game in the series where Joe DiMaggio plays his last game. He, he retired right after that. So they're taking in the game. You know, Dulles later said, well, I know this guy, Reinhard Galen, isn't, you know, the nicest chap, but you don't have to invite him to your club but, of course, he did invite him to the club. He not only got him World Series tickets, he invited him to his club in Washington whenever he visited. He wined him and dined him. And they exchanged, you know, Christmas cards and birthday cards. And he basically supported him after the war as his, his, his rise within the West German power structure and helped install him as the top spy master under Chancellor Conrad Adenauer. So a post that he held throughout much of the Cold War. He was a very powerful figure. Now, and, David, uh, you, you mentioned postcards and that. You've gone through a lot of the journals and daily calendars of Alan Dulles. That's yeah. something that I don't think a lot of people have ever gotten to get that insight. Can you describe some of the things that you found? Well, you know, he was very proud of some correspondence. So you'd think, you know, of course, they were heavily purged, these files. So, you know, God knows what Angleton and others <laughs> burned. Uh, after Dulles died in, uh, 1969, you know, Angleton quickly swooped down along with his other, uh, associates and mechanics, CI mechanics into Dulles' home in Georgetown and went through all the files and everything. So, yeah, the files that are at Princeton where, uh, Alan Dulles' papers are kept, of course, are heavily purged. But it's funny, they, you know, what they allow to, uh, to stay in those, those files. And some of the things that are very interesting were his day calendars, and we can talk about that, some of the revealing things in his day calendars that he kept throughout the, uh, his life, his career, up until his death. And, you know, again, there are some interesting days that are blacked out heavily, like when he went to Dallas in 1963, I believe it was August of 63, um, and, of course, Kennedy's killed in November of 63. No, it was October October of 63. Was it October? Yeah, thank yeah. you. Some of the people he was seeing there were blacked out. But you do still get an interesting sense of uh, some of the people he's meeting with and, and the correspondence. And, of course, he's very proud of some of his correspondence. And now, of course, it's particularly revealing like how cozy his relationships were with top media executives and, and editors and so on. I mean, this guy had the American media totally wired. So it just makes me laugh when people say, well... 
you know, we live in such a media-saturated society. You know, we know everything about everyone's celebrity sex lives and everything. You know, how could they have possibly conspired to kill the president? The media would have been all over this. That just makes me laugh as a journalist who spent my entire life in media. You know, when I see how the sausage gets made or doesn't get made. I mean, the American media, the press corps, particularly the Washington press corps, are some of the most timid and complicit professionals in the world. And they were very cozy and complicit with Alan Dulles and his regime at the CIA. I mean, many of his files in which there's, you know, letter after letter back and forth between him and the top editors of the New York Times, at the Henry Luce's Time Life Empire, at the Washington Post, at Newsweek, at CBS, on and on. You know, Ali, they're calling me Ali. He has nicknames for them. They're going to see him at the club. You know, it was great to go on vacation with you. <laughs> One letter from, I quote in the book, from the Newsweek editor right after the Warren Report is released, which, of course, Alan Dulles was heavily involved in as a member of that commission, in fact, someone who dominated that commission. And this editor, I, th I think he was the head of the Washington Bureau of, the, of Newsweek at the time, says, Dear Mr. Dulles, thank you so much for helping direct and you know our coverage of the Warren Commission. Yeah, I just read that this morning. Yeah, that was really funny. <laughs> so Dulles, of course, is proud of that stuff, so it's all in his files. Yeah, and, and let's not forget, which um, I think uh, you very uh, wisely made a, a key point in, in your book, is the whole Charles Murphy-Henry Luce operation with Dulles and Hunt after the Bay of Pigs, when Dulles realized that Kennedy was going to dump him, okay, over that whole affair. And he got out his cover story with Charles Murphy, you know, at Fortune. That's right. Charles Murphy was basically his ghostwriter. He, he in fact, helped write... The eulogy for Dulles' yes, funeral. really funny. I with Angleton. So he was a guy who was a top reporter in the Loose Empire at Fortune magazine. Right, and he's doing all this ghostwriting for Dulles throughout his career. Until, as I say, until, you know, even for his funeral. I found this day calendar and the appointments, even though they don't have the minutes of what they spoke about, very interesting. And like you mentioned, Dallas, I think a lot of people here are interested to see what kind of ties there are between this intelligence agency run by Alan Dulles and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And, and let me pose the question to you this way. Are you surprised in your investigation to find out about Alan Dulles's quote, retirement? Because you go into in detail that you think that he was fired, forced to retire, but what you discover is something entirely different. Yeah, Len, I think that is one of the key contributions the book makes. I'm not aware of others who've made at least a strong case for this in book form, which is that Alan Dulles didn't get the memo when he was fired by Kennedy. Of course, Kennedy is furious with him after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion, the CIA operation in Cuba. His days are numbered after that in April 61. By November, he's officially gone. He's out. And he does go through a brief period of, you know, being a little bit disoriented and, and his, his whole life has been in power and suddenly he's, you know, supposedly retired at home in Georgetown. But he really bounces back pretty quickly. And he begins to see a steady stream of his top aides, people like Angleton, Helms, and so on, and sort of more the, more the operative types, too, as well. Howard Hunt and others stay in touch. He's going to conferences. He's going to meetings. He's meeting with people at his clubs. He starts to finally speak out against Kennedy. He's, I believe, involved in secret operations that subvert the Kennedy presidency abroad, particularly in Italy, which I go into in the book. 
And basically what Dulles does in so-called retirement is to set up an anti-Kennedy government in exile out of his home in Georgetown. And some of the people he's meeting with, in fact, are later tied by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, among other investigators, to to the murder of the president in Dallas, including Howard Hunt. So, well, can you go into that a little further? Because it's almost as if John McCone is just keeping the chair warm. And as you reveal, these people are coming and going, and it's like Alan Dulles is still there running the ship. Yeah, well, John McCone, of course, is this Republican businessman, and he was served in the you know Eisenhower administration. But he he's not a CIA guy. He wasn't one of the old boys, and he basically shared Dulles's worldview and his strong anti-communist perspective, and he and he kept those policies going. And the Kennedys came to really regret, I quote, this conversation between JFK and Bobby Kennedy in the White House that was taped because JFK had his own taping system, and they're ragging on John McCone. And JFK's realized, of course, what a mistake it was, and saying that he's, you know, stabbing us in the back all over Washington, which was true. You get that sense from Arthur Schlesinger's journals as well. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger is going to many of the same parties on the Washington circuit when McCone shows up, and he's like, you know, McCone is openly denouncing Kennedy, everything, his economic policy, his foreign policy, and so on. So he's basically, again, this, you know, wolf inside the Kennedy administration. The Kennedy administration was riddled with anti-Kennedy people. And so McCone's basically, as I say, continuing the Dulles policy, but you know, some of the darker stuff that the Dulles had initiated before McCone replaces him, I don't think McCone fully was even aware of. I think Helms, you know, and Angleton were running that. Dulles was, you know, they were probably keeping Dulles in the loop. But McCone, I think, you know, didn't want to know and was kept out of the loop. But so, yeah, the Dulles policy continued to go on even after Dulles left. Well, specifically in the book, which, again, this is something... And, and by the way, let, let me add here, as the author just noted, you know, I had done a lot of work on Alan Dulles myself, but I really have to say there was a lot of things in this book that not only was I not aware of, but I was really surprised, you know, that David found it. Because this one I'm going to refer to now is in the book, you have him raising money through some business interests for a secret invasion of Cuba by the Cuban exiles in 1963? That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, is this, you mean Paulina Sierra Martinez, are you referring to? Yes, right. Yeah, so he is this former Batista thug, basically. Some people, even in his family, thought he was an assassin, posed undercover for uh, Batista, serving in some ministerial role for Batista that allowed him to go overseas. Batista, of course, is the uh, mafia-connected, corrupt thug, is the best word for him, who ran Cuba before Fidel Castro. And so Paulina Sierra Martinez you know, serves the Batista government, flees after Castro takes over, ends up in Florida with his family. He gets his law degree in the U.S. and ends up working for a, a Rockefeller-connected company in Chicago. Is it uh, Union Tank Car? And starts raising money after the Bay of Pigs invasion when it looks like the anti-Castro movement has been cut off by the Kennedy administration. It's kind of at loose ends and is in something of disarray. Sierra Martinez comes into that vacuum at that point in late 62, I believe. And he starts to make connections to the mafia. He's making connections with U.S. corporations that have had a big stake in Cuba and had lost their assets after Castro took over. And he meets with Alan Dulles. And 
all we know is from the House Select Committee on Assassinations dug up this document that showed that he had met with Dulles. But here's a former CIA director who really moved in, you know, pretty high echelons. I mean, with the top people in corporate and political America. And suddenly he's meeting with this guy who was a former Batista hitman who's now raising money for an invasion, a new invasion of Cuba. So obviously this was not only in contravention of Kennedy policy at the time, who was withdrawing support more and more from the anti-Castro exile movement, but it was a bizarre sort of clash of two different social orders. You know, these weren't the kind of guys that Dulles normally hung out with. So that's kind of a mysterious meeting. Later, the Secret Service connects Sierra Martinez to a plot against JFK. And this, too, comes out during the House Select Committee investigation. And this is never fully explained how he was involved in this plot and so on. The Secret Service wanted to pursue that investigation after Kennedy's assassination, but the FBI cut them off and said, basically, this is our investigation, you know, butt out. Yeah, you, you made the connection to the Homer, Homer Echeverria incident, right? Exactly. He was involved right. with, uh, Sierra Martinez was involved with him. Yeah, which makes people, well, I think you actually put it in your book. Is this, is this part of the Chicago plot? Did you come yeah, to any that, conclusions on I that? I think that's what, I think, I believe that's what the Secret Service was on to, right. And of course, we know that one of the more diligent people in the Secret Service, Abe Bolden, right, was working out of Chicago. Right. So that was the suspicion at the time, but the FBI shut down that investigation after Dallas. But again, it's just these are some many of the just one of the many curious people that Alan Dulles is meeting with. So the book has been attacked here and there by people in the mainstream press for one said it was for being animated by conspiracy theories. But well, you know, know we don't even have to go into that because I I've read some of those and they are without merit and they're gutless and they're they're really so ill informed as to make them pointless. They are, and they and they they were unable to really engage with me on, in, in any detailed way because they are uninformed. Often these critics, they just are sort of mouthing what they've heard for years, and of course, it's a way of shutting down legitimate investigation into these dark corners of our history. But the point is, you know, everything in this book, it's a process of inductive reasoning. You know, to use the to go back to Sherlock Holmes. Are there smoking guns that the CIA left around saying Alan Dulles was the mastermind of this? No, that's not the way they work. But once you enter a world that is this shadowy, the best you can do is to compile pieces of evidence and at the end come to an educated conclusion about all these hundreds and hundreds of pieces of evidence that I do put together in the book. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a very big book. Like I said, even just the audio version is 24 hours. But you leave this trail of meetings and insinuation where there's not going to be a paper trail if Dulles is meeting with Martinez there. Just the fact that they met and then you discover who the Sierra Martinez is and what Mm -hmm. he's been doing. Well, and the other key assassin that you have to investigate in the context of Dulles is William Harvey. So we all know that name. You know, he's been a figure of great suspicion in the Kennedy case for many years, going back to the 70s. And basically, when you look at who was William Harvey, William Harvey was the guy that Dulles put in charge of the assassination operation that later was exposed by the Church Committee and other investigations in the 70s. This was the operation that targeted foreign leaders. And, of course, the CIA story at the time when they went before 
Congress to investigate it, to answer these charges in the 70s was, well, we were the gang that couldn't shoot straight. We we tried to kill these guys like Lumumba and others, but, you know, we didn't really pull it off, and, and, and they ended up getting killed some other way. Or, but the truth is they were much more effective than they let on. Dulles, I mean, Lumumba indeed was killed by CIA contractors, and we don't know the full list of all the many people the CIA was killing in those years through the Cold War. We know that there was a death list after the Arbenz government was overthrown in Guatemala that included not just Arbenz, who did die under mysterious circumstances in exile, scalded to death in a bathtub in Mexico City, but we know that there were dozens and dozens of other people who are not even known to us, other opposition political leaders, journalists, union officials, farm worker organizers, many of whom ended up dead. And Well, yeah, you tell the story of uh, Jose de Glenda. By the way, that's, I was, that's on my list, too. This is the guy who wanted to expose Trujillo, right? This is a, uh, Jesus de Glenda, who was a Basque exile. He fled Franco after the war, ended up jumping out of the frying pan into the fire, ending up in the Dominican Republic during the Trujillo dictatorship, worked briefly for the Trujillo government, and then fled there to New York City and became a prominent critic of Trujillo, who ran probably one of the most vicious dictatorships of the era. And he became an academic at Columbia University and was getting his Ph.D. there. And his Ph.D. dissertation was a inside critique and indictment of the Trujillo regime. Trujillo got wind of this. He had his agents everywhere, and they tried to buy the thesis from him before he could complete it, but he refused. And one day, after he had taught class at Columbia, he was headed back home to his apartment in Manhattan, and he was grabbed. And this, in one of, the, I think, the first cases of CIA extraordinary rendition, he was grabbed by, again, CIA contractors working for Robert Mayhew, who was the detective who worked as a CIA cutout, in the United States because by law the CIA was forbidden from operating on U.S. soil, so they used cutouts like Mayhew's detective agency. They grabbed this professor, got him out to Long Island, drugged him, put him on an airplane, flew him to uh, Dominican Republic where he was horribly tortured and executed by Trujillo's security people. So this is what later became known as extraordinary rendition, and it happened under Dulles. And then another thing that you brought up, which again I'd been aware of, but you went into it a lot more depth than I've ever seen in the Kennedy research community, was a whole attempt of the CIA to encourage and help the OAS overthrow de Gaulle. And by the way, this is one of the things you've been criticized about, right? Yeah. The Chronicle, uh, San Francisco Chronicle criticized me for this because they said, well, my only sources were the French press at the time. Well, number one, there's no reason to suspect the French press was inaccurate, and this critic had no evidence that they these reports in the French press were inaccurate. And number two, uh, used other multiple sources for this, not just the reports in the French press at the time. And the reason those reports were in the French press was because the de Gaulle's government itself was leaking to them. So here's an ally of ours, Charles de Gaulle, the war hero, conservative, Catholic, not exactly, you know, kind of the communist types, supposedly, that we were going around the world overthrowing. But he'd fallen into disfavor with the hardliners like Dulles in Washington because he was trying to settle the long, bloody colonial war, French colonial war, in Algeria. And he was also trying, he was very nationalistic and proud, and he was trying to steer his own direction and not be under the thumb of NATO. 
And so they resented this and decided that he had to go. So his efforts, de Gaulle's efforts to settle the war in Algeria sets off a backlash from right-wing French generals there. And in April 1961, as poor JFK is still wrestling with the Bay of Pigs fiasco that the CIA has dumped in his lap, he's now forced to deal with another crisis uh, instigated by the CIA when he starts getting outraged phone calls and howls of outrage from the de Gaulle government saying, what the hell is going on? Is this, are you supporting this coup attempt against me? And they're expecting, um, you know, troops from Algeria to begin descending in parachutes over Paris at any minute. There are tank units, rebellious tank units, gathering in force outside of Paris. It's one of the most dramatic moments in French, the history of French democracy in the 20th century. And so JFK is put in the very awkward position of saying, no, I have nothing to do with this coup, but I can't speak for my own CIA. So imagine that, the President of the United States telling a key ally, Charles de Gaulle in France, that I cannot speak for my own CIA, and that's what the French ambassador communicates back to Paris. De Gaulle is able, finally, by rallying the French people, it's a very dramatic thing, going on television, people pour into the streets, they basically face down this mutinous military action, and he wins the day. It's an amazing moment. And yes, it hasn't really been reported in this country, except at the time. What the Chronicle criticized me for this didn't mention is that even the New York Times was covering it at the time, James Reston and his columns saying, that the CIA has gone too far. They seem to be supporting this coup against, you know, de Gaulle. So this was widely reported on at the time. And there was government documents I used also at the time, French and American, to support the fact that this was happening. De Gaulle, of course, after Kennedy's killed, later comes home from the funeral in Washington and tells his own information minister, well, Kennedy was killed by the same U.S. security forces that tried to kill me which is a remarkable statement. He goes on at length and he says, but the United States will never be able, official United States will never let this come out. It would cause rioting in the streets. It would, you know, there'd be a civil war in the U.S. And so they'll never let this come out. And Oswald is a convenient fall guy. And it's fascinating, his, his observations and about this. As someone who himself has been at war with his own right wing and with U.S. security forces and is been the target many times of assassination efforts, including the famous Day of the Jackal sniper attack on his motorcade, very similar to Dallas in some ways, that he survives because his security team was loyal to him. So, you know, there's many interesting corners of history in the book. When you started quoting that interview with de Gaulle, which I had never seen before, I'm reading this and I go, I wonder, was de Gaulle talking to Castro? Because it so much resembled what Castro said the day after the assassination. You know, it was almost like they compared notes. This is what really happened. This is a bunch of BS what they're saying in the, you know, in the United States. You know, so you've got well, this one conservative guy from Europe and you've got this communist guy in the Caribbean saying the same thing about what just happened 24 hours before. Well, of course, the political elites all around the world said one thing for public consumption and then another thing among themselves. And, and de Gaulle is one case of this. Nixon was another case. I write about this more actually in Brothers, where LBJ, Nixon, de Gaulle, you know, Bobby Kennedy, they all immediately suspected a plot and they were convinced it was a plot. But of course, they all went along with the Warren Report as a convenient way to put the uh, public's fears to rest. So 
yeah, I mean, they all knew what happened. I mean, anyone who, like particularly like a de Gaulle, who was very well aware of how security forces work and how they undermine democracies and how they often work with organized crime to do their dirty work, he knew it all. And he laid it all out for his information minister who wrote about it in his memoir. And you're right. It was widely, of course, published. It was a bestseller in France, this information minister's book, his memoirs of working for de Gaulle. But it was the very briefest of quotes that hit the wires in the U.S. when this book was published, and that was it. So that's what all happens. All to, uh, I had the, I don't speak French, but I had a, I worked with a French researcher who translated the book for me and other French sources. So it's amazing, even in the Internet day, how sometimes you know these things, vital pieces of information like this, do get lost in translation. I have a question here, though. You know, Victor Krulak had written to Fletcher Prouty identifying Ed Lansdale in Dealey Plaza. Uh, you have William Harvey in Dallas weeks before. Can you talk about this idea that the CIA has created this killing machine? And I think the observation that this whole task force aimed at Castro was turned around. And Dulles went in and met with these guys and said, we got new orders now. Yeah, you know, sometimes I think even our own research community gets lost down these rabbit holes and we make things too complicated. But I think now, 50-some years on, the, you know, the best of our you know, researchers and investigators can begin to agree on the big picture stuff. And to me, that's what I try to do with this book. I say, look, let's, you know, it's pretty obvious at this point. What happened was that the CIA under Alan Dulles did build a killing team. It built a, an assassination kill team that was used all around the world. And that kill team in one form or another came back, was brought back to Dallas to kill our own president. And it shouldn't be a surprise to people that, you know, when you create a beast like we did, this killing beast, and you put it in other people's backyards, to use an analogy that Hillary Clinton used in a different context not long ago, that beast is going to enter your own home at some point, which is what it did in Dallas. So what happened was this. We now know that Howard Hunt, by his own admission, was involved in that crime. His son is convinced of it and his deathbed. He basically... Uh, made a bailed confession. We now know that De David Morales, another key assassin for the CIA, was also by his own admission in Dallas. And now I put William Harvey, who maybe is the most important person to put in Dallas from uh, you know the point of view of proving a conspiracy. As I was talking about earlier, William Harvey was you know a known thug and, and gun-loving head of the CIA's assassination operation who was put in charge of that by Dulles. And he takes it over at some point early in the Kennedy administration, this operation that was inherited, you know, that was a holdover from the Eisenhower years, and that I believe that the Kennedys were unaware of at the time and had not authorized. And in fact, when Bobby Kennedy was finally told about May 62, he, you know, he, he was outraged because, of course, he spent most of his life fighting the mafia, and suddenly he's being told by the CIA that they're working hand-in-glove to kill Castro. And he believed he'd stopped it at that point, but it did continue. In fact, at the very time that the CIA was telling Bobby Kennedy that they had pulled the plug on it, William Harvey was handing poison pills to his uh, mafia friends to kill Castro. So uh, Harvey is a very central figure because he's head of Alan Dallas's kill team. And when he finally falls afoul of the Kennedy brothers, they hate each other. And Harvey sends in a raiding team at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis that could have triggered World War III. When Bobby hears about this, he's so furious that Harvey's 
patrons at the CIA realized to save his career, they got to get him out of the U.S. and got to get him away from the Kennedys. So they sent him to Rome where he becomes station chief. And what the new information I have is from his deputy, Mark Wyatt, who was a, a career CIA official and a, a good one by all accounts, loved Italy, spoke Italian fluently. He and his wife had met there and married there. And if Harvey is sort of the ugly American, you know, uh, a guy like Mark Wyatt is one of the decent ones. But he is working under Harvey, and he realizes this guy is dangerous. Among other things, Harvey's proposing to him that they recruit mobsters, mafia people in Italy, to kill Italian Communist Party officials. And Wyatt can't believe it. And they argue violently again and again. At one point, Harvey even draws a gun on Wyatt. Now, this is all from his, why it is now dead, but from his grown children, three of whom I interviewed, all three of them, and from an investigative journalist named Fabrizio Calvi, who's a very respected investigative journalist in Europe, who interviewed Wyatt before he died uh, at his retirement home in Lake Tahoe, who told him as he was leaving, you know, I've often wondered why Bill Harvey was in Dallas in November 63. Well, Calvi, this investigative journalist, knew enough about the Kennedy assassination to know that was an astounding thing. And so he asked him more about it. And apparently, Wyatt said I, he was on a plane going from Rome to Dallas in November 63, and he sees his boss, Harvey, there. And he asked him, well, why are you going to Dallas, Bill? And he was very vague. And he said, uh, well, I'm just going to look around or something like that. So his own deputy, Bill Harvey's own deputy, told his children his grown children before he died, he was convinced that Bill Harvey was some way involved in the Kennedy assassination, not based just solely on that sighting, but on other things that Harvey told him in Rome. I believe that Harvey did play a key role there. That's what Howard Hunt said as well, that maybe he was the guy who was in charge of bringing in the killers or the guns, who knows, but we now have his deputy placing him in Dallas in November 63. So this is another, I think, remarkable piece of evidence. So that's what I fundamentally believe. I believe that Dulles's kill team was brought home to kill our own president. So you have, you have. Let, let's just get it out on the record. You've got Dulles in Dallas three or four weeks before the assassination. you got David Phillips in Dallas admitting this to his brother before he died. And meeting with Oswald, according to Antonio Vecchiana, right. the Q, right. uh, anti-Castro-Cuban leader. You got Hunt, and now you have Harvey. So what's the other, were they all Cowboys? And David there? Morales. Yeah. What were they all doing there? I mean, is it just a coincidence? It's and very, by the way, very strange. Yeah. Um, and by the way, uh, I tried to nail this down further by petitioning the CIA through the Freedom of Information Act for Bill Harvey's travel vouchers to prove that he was actually in Dallas and that he was flying from Rome to Dallas in November 63. And, of course, they stonewalled me and refused to release those records. What was the grounds in which they refused to give them to you? That they weren't relevant. <laughs> you know, Are you serious? Jim Lazar, who's, of course, the indefatigable you know, Washington attorney who's gone after the CIA again and again for many, on behalf of many investigators and researchers, he was my attorney on it. Yeah, and they, they either you know, run down the game clock and so you have to go to press with your book before they get back to you or they give some vague responses. And that's happened to me again and again. I've never been able to get anything out of the CIA. You know, if, that, if, they, if, they, if they would have said that to me in court, I think it would have fallen down laughing. It's not relevant. 
if Harvey was in Dallas before the assassination? Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Then the other thing, of course, you have in there, which I think is, is so fascinating, is that Dulles, on the night of the assassination, begins a two-day sojourn at the farm. So why don't you explain what the farm is and why that's so odd that he would go there? Yeah, the farm, which is also known as Camp Peary, is a uh, high-security facility that is operated, I think, still to this day in northern Virginia by the CIA. Dan Hardway, the House Select Committee, former investigator for the House Select Committee on Assassination, called it a basically an a alternative command post that Alan Dulles set up for himself. And he actually had a very comfortable, nice house built for himself right on the base. It was used, according to other CIA sources, including Philip Agee and others, as a training center for foreign operatives and an interrogation center for people who had fallen into CIA hands, even as an assassination training center. So a very interesting you know, site for Alan Dell suddenly to show up at the weekend that President Kennedy is killed in uh, Dallas and that Jack Ruby then kills Lee Harvey Oswald. A lot going on that weekend. And so here's a retired CIA official who supposedly has no professional connection to the U.S. government at that point. He's been fired by Kennedy two years before. He's supposedly retired. And yet he's not at home watching the events in Dallas like the rest of Americans. He's at a CIA facility. And he puts this in his own day calendar. He's there at the farm as it was called, for that entire weekend. So, yeah, this is obviously a provocative piece of information. And, you know, we don't know for certain and probably never will what he was doing there, but there he was. And then you follow this up with another very, very fascinating tidbit that somehow, you know, LBJ just didn't pull Alan Dulles' name out of space. Alan Dulles actually had a lobbying campaign to get on the Warren Commission. Absolutely. Well, of course, you know, the story that LBJ himself told that then other people picked up, including Robert Caro, who should know better, the historian who spent, you know, volume after volume, you know, detailing all the deceitful ways of Lyndon Johnson. (laughs) And yet he takes this one at face value. And Lyndon Johnson wrote in his memoir, oh, yeah, Bobby Kennedy wanted me to appoint Alan Dulles to the Warren Commission. Well, to me, this is absurd uh, for a number of reasons. One is that Lyndon Johnson would confer that closely with Bobby Kennedy about such a delicate issue as who he was going to put on the Warren Commission, an investigation that might have uh, sealed his own fate. Bobby Kennedy, of course, and Lyndon Johnson were notorious political enemies. They despised one another. And so he's not going to be taking that kind of political advice from Bobby. Number two, the idea that Bobby would would himself urge LBJ to take Dulles is also uh, highly suspect. Again, Bobby kept a list of all the enemies and knew that Dulles was an arch enemy of his brother. He'd been fired. In fact, it was Bobby who insisted that all Dulles's be cleansed, be purged from the Kennedy administration after the Bay of Pigs, including Alan's sister, Eleanor, who worked at the State Department. He went to Dean Rusk, Secretary of State, and said, get rid of all the Dulleses. So the idea that Bobby Kennedy, who said, get rid of all the Dulleses, is going to want Alan Dulles to serve on the investigation of his brother's murder, I mean, please. So, But this gets repeated endlessly. Now Phil Shannon, the former New York Times reporter, we can talk about him later, what he's all about, you know, repeated it recently in his article in Politico that's been causing a lot of controversy. 
So it's one of these endless, I think, CIA kind of tropes that gets repeated over and over again. Because, of course, if you have Bobby Kennedy, you know, blessing Alan Dulles, then somehow, of course, this gives some legitimacy to the whole warring investigation. No, it was, you know, he strong-armed people. I mean, he, he, he had intermediaries go to LBJ, this is Dulles, to say he got to put Dulles on the commission. Richard Helms said this himself, you know, his right-hand man at the CIA. You know, I quote two or three sources on this, that Alan Dulles worked very hard behind the scenes to get Johnson's yeah, Corson, appointment. Corson. Corson. Yeah, including Bill Corson, who was sort of a, a Marine guy who was connected to the CIA, who, you know, uh, was very close to the Dulles family. Corson himself said Dulles went all out, you know, to get on that commission. And then, of course, you know, the capper is that once he gets on the commission, he becomes the single most active member of the Warren Commission because he was the only guy who didn't have a job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he didn't have a day job. So the senators and the Congress people, right, are shuttling back and forth to um, the Capitol building doing their business all during the Warren investigation. Earl Warren himself is still sitting on the Supreme Court as Chief Justice, so he has a busy job. John McCloy was was still employed elsewhere, the banker diplomat, but he, he had a little more time, and I think he and Dulles are the two most significant figures. If you read the minutes from those hearings, and followed closely by Jerry Ford, who I think was the FBI's man on the commission, who was a young congressman at the time. I think those three are the ones who really control, and you can see it from the very beginning, because the most important decision the Warren Commission makes early on is who's going to be chief counsel, because, of course, that's a very key, sensitive post, the person who really is going to day-to-day run the investigation. And that turned out to be J. Lee Rankin, of course, who was, you know, someone who was closely associated with the Dulles wing of the Republican Party and someone that Dulles wanted uh, in that post, while Earl Warren himself had wanted Warren Olney, who had served with him in the Eisenhower Justice Department and was someone he trusted. But those three, Ford, McCloy, and Dulles, joined forces to block Earl Warren's choice, and they installed their own instead. Well, I was going to ask you, with this in-depth of research, how long did it take you when you started writing to, to get this book out? Well, you know, in some ways it flowed from the brothers, which took about four years, or even longer, four or five years to because I was starting from scratch there. With Dulles, I had sort of more of a head start because of my previous work on Brothers, but it took three years. I also should give a shout-out here to Karen Croft, who is my right-hand person on all my books and, and works with me closely on research on all the books. And there's no way I could have done it in three years without Karen's help. So it took us, yeah, three years, research and writing. Because it sounds like you've traveled around the world for these interviews. Well, we did. We went to... Uh, we had some interesting sources in Italy because I tell an interesting story there. And there's an investigative magistrate, Carlo Mastelloni, who's done some very important investigative work on sort of the deep state in Italy and the CIA. And Mastelloni had some important information for us about Alan Dulles and the CIA in Italy and how they tried to subvert Kennedy policy there. And, yeah, so we, we went far afield on this. But, uh, of course, Joan Dulles, or Joan Talley is the married name. Dulles' daughter was another interesting source, Siri Hari Angleton, James Angleton's daughter, both of whom live in New Mexico. We went down there and spent time with them. Often, you know, because virtually all these people are dead, of course, the, the main characters in the book, their children turn out to be sometimes interesting.